Chapter 13 Marie was easy to follow. Her heavy black coat hugged her figure. Despite the cold, she walked meditatively, which is to say her pace was sedate but regular. It was odd that she never looked right or left. Her fur hat might once have warmed the head of a Russian princess. There were stragglers in the shadows. To Otto, so late at night, the threat of danger seemed more apparent. As Marie crossed a footbridge, some scruff with a beard was staring straight at her from the shadows. Loitering on the opposite side, Otto pretended to study a poster on a lamppost. Large letters announced the premiere of an opera called Orfeo and Eurydice. To compel people to buy tickets, the poster had a drawing of a cauldron brimming with gold coins. As soon as Marie got to the other side, Otto crossed after her. He didn't know where she was going, but he suspected she had no intention of returning home. She went into a grid of poorly lit lanes where parked cars were covered in a speckled white blanket. Although there were only muffled sounds in the snowfall, what filled Otto's head was a buzzing. While his shoes took him wherever he was going, it was this worrisome buzzing that accompanied his footfalls. Based on what he knew about Marie's circumstances, he began to guess where she was leading them. He chose to disregard his guess because he would go after Marie no matter where she was heading. But his guess only intensified the buzzing. When her pace slowed, he ducked into a doorway. From this hidden position, he couldn't see what she was doing. He was feeling colder. He shoved his hands into his pockets and twiddled with the tissue there. As he counted the seconds, a low-slung dog went by. It had a long tail and a lupine walk. It didn't look up. Otto counted 30 seconds before he peeked round the edge of his hiding place. Marie had begun to walk again. He pulled the collar of his coat up so that it covered his mouth. She passed under a street light and hesitated. Strands of black hair trailed in wisps from under her hat. She was at a crossroads. She could either go right or left. She went left, around a corner, and was gone. The next few paces Otto took at a jog. He stopped by the side of a building and snuck a look. Marie was going in, just two doors down. When he got to the door, he was presented with all the evidence he needed to confirm that his guess had been correct after all. The evidence, engraved on a brass plate, mounted by the side of the door, displayed the name of an establishment known as Elysium. The legend below indicated that it was a members-only club. Otto pushed the door. It opened into a narrow stairway. The flock wallpaper lining the stairway was dense with blue and golden Barocco patterns. A flight of creaky steps led up to an anteroom. It had blue velvet seating and mirrors lined in gilt. As he entered, 
Otto began to hear the saccharine sounds of a harmonica solo over a soft rhythmic backing. Marie was standing with her back to him. She'd taken her fur hat off. She was talking to a man in a tight-fitting suit. He was big and bald. The lines of a tattoo spiraled along one side of his neck. She was showing this man the contents of the bin bag she'd been carrying. When he saw what was inside, he pouted his lips. His eyes shot up and rested on Otto. Marie looked around, and for the second time that night, Otto was treated to the spectacle of her unwelcoming gaze. As if surrendering, he held his hands palms out and said, I can explain. The harmonica solo was coming from behind a set of heavy blue curtains, just behind the big bald man. It was the kind of music that appealed sardonically to the listener to cast all worries aside. Turning back to the man, Marie resigned herself to having to make an admission. That's my husband, she said. Bruno Mankel was not the proprietor of the club, but he was duty manager that night, and he had a wide discretion when it came to the way in which club rules were observed. Ignoring Otto, he asked, Why is he here? Mankel had a high-pitched voice, which made it sound all the more menacing. It was Otto who answered. I'm here to make sure my wife pays you what she owes you, he said. Marie laughed. He followed me. She needs to pay her debts, Otto said. I think the adult thing to do would be to close her account with you here and now. Please take what's yours, but I'd like a receipt if you don't mind. Bruno Mankel knew all about being an adult. He'd been one since he was seven. Apart from his mother, in the duty manager's eyes, everyone was an opponent, as well as honing his muscles in anticipation of the occasional skirmish, he'd acquired a special kind of business acumen forged in the beatings his father had dispensed. He was an expert on the faces of those whose money was being taken from them. Having given up street robbery long before, Mankel had grown more sophisticated in the delivery of his world view. He'd come to appreciate how much more satisfying it is to use the legally permissible weapon of gaming averages against his victims, without being reduced to the messiness of having to cause them lasting physical injury. Even so, there were times in Mankel's career when the imposition of his considerable body mass was still required. As if this might be one of those times, he grabbed the bin bag from Marie and squared up to Otto. But now there was a tenderness in the squeal of his voice, reserved for those who needed to be relaxed before they met their fate. Welcome to Club Elysium, hello, sir, he said. Many accounts are settled amicably. It is our custom to offer a bottle of Prosecco on the house. Otto knew it wouldn't be wise to prolong his contact with this man, or this place they were in. He'd represented men like Bruno Mankel. Although he'd done his lawyering in England, it seemed that men like this could be produced internationally. All of a sudden, Mankel had his hand clasped over Otto's shoulder. 
He was squeezing masterfully as he swept the heavy blue curtains aside and walked Otto into the gushy sounds of happiness played on a harmonica with a jazzy backing. Marie followed robotically. Her eyes were glazed. The duty manager showed his guests to a booth in a raised section of the club, overlooking the gaming tables. Despite the music, the atmosphere was subdued, even tense. Of the different games on offer, the centerpiece of the establishment was a roulette table, situated in the middle of the gaming floor. The table was surrounded by men and women, getting more grey and sapped by the hour, each of them absorbed by the prospect of doubling their salaries. If you would like to wait here, Mankel said, his voice blended nicely with the canned music overhead. I'll go prepare that receipt for you. Otto could see Bartek Novak behind all of this. He imagined what he might do to the malign force leading his family astray if Novak dared to make an appearance now. The satisfaction this gave him didn't last. Is this where your Polish boyfriend works? he asked. Marie nodded. I'm not with him anymore. I know, Otto said. He had, after all, foreseen the end of that relationship. What he hadn't foreseen, not with any clarity, were the details of the harm Novak had done. You may not be with him, he said, but he's still with you. He's still with Jacob. I'm trying to figure out what he's done to Izzy. It took all of Marie's will to prevent a strong reaction. She was about to explain to Otto that he'd got it all wrong when a waiter approached with two flutes and a bottle of Prosecco. While the waiter poured their fizzy drinks, another member of staff came along. She was holding a polished walnut box. Her mankle pays his compliments, the woman said. She put the box on the table between Otto and Marie. What's this? Otto asked. It's your receipt, the woman said. They didn't touch their drinks. They stared at the box. Marie's expression became sleepy and unreadable again. She was hiding behind it. Her instinct was telling her to wait before she said anything else. Otto had allowed himself to believe that it was customary at Club Elysium for receipts to be delivered in wooden boxes. Although he'd worked out that Marie was a compulsive gambler, he couldn't have responded more naively to the predicament he was in with her. He was getting tired. He wasn't invincible, after all. He'd been through the gamut of emotions that day. He'd woken up wearing the veil of perfection. By early afternoon, the veil had been cast aside in a gloom. What with Jacob, and now with Marie, it seemed that whenever he tried to interpret the facts as he'd predicted them, all that was revealed was another error on his part. He saw Marie's hand twitch and felt his own hand twitch. It was the contents of the box drawing them in. Now he imagined he was one of two birds wheeling through the air. The birds looked exactly alike. They were chasing each other in circles, but it was impossible to tell who was after who. It was Otto who opened the lid of the box. Inside, there were four rows of plastic chips in mixed garish colors to the value of 30,000 euros. 
their denominations went from hundreds to thousands. Only then did Otto see the deception. As he looked around the room from Mankel, Marie's hands clamped themselves around the sides of the box. She was pulling it towards her. Otto shook his head. Don't, he said. He said it quietly. He didn't want to make a fuss. He wondered how far he could go to stop her if Marie actually took the box. But she'd already picked it up. Without glancing back, she walked away from their table. From that moment, the serrated edges of reality became more apparent. It seemed there was no longer any confluence between events. It was as if the action could snap to the next emotional peak, and then the next, until Otto was sitting alongside Marie at the roulette table. The size of the bet Marie wanted to make had drawn a crowd. She'd put 10,000 euros on red to win. More spectators were gathering. People were getting their mobile phones out to film the bet and post the action online. They gathered like stars in the night, illuminating only what was essential. The croupier was in his sixties. He had an easy manner and dyed black hair, greased back over his pate. He shook his pate from side to side. I'm sorry, he said. The limit is five thousand. Bruno Mankel was in the crowd as well. He was another star in the cluster. Along with everyone else, he was filming it. It was with an expression of benevolence, unsuited to his hard looks, that he gave Marie his blessing. To a collective intake of breath, Bruno announced, Tonight, there will be no limits. For Marie, since becoming a problem gambler, the pleasure of betting was proportionate to the size of the bet. The more money she could place on the table, the more magical it felt. Bruno's words made her so relieved that she slid the walnut box onto the red patch next to the chips she'd already put there. This tripled the bet to 30,000 euros. To savor the first peaceful moment she'd known since she'd last lost a fortune, she shut her eyes. As she let her head roll back, she smiled. There was a commotion which made Marie open her eyes. When she opened them, she saw that Bruno had been smiling too, but that his smile had wavered when Otto had taken hold of the walnut box, as well as the loose chips on the table. Marie slapped her hand onto Otto's arm. Don't you dare, she said. But all he did, with her hand still on his arm, was slide the box and the loose chips onto the black patch to win. At any other time, the fact that the bet had been reversed might have troubled Marie. To the extent that she felt ambivalent about whose bet it was, the pleasure she felt was depleted. But she was still part of it, and the atmosphere was electric, so she let the moment pass, just as Bruno nodded to the croupier, who spun the wheel and rolled the white ball over the rim. All the mobile phones recorded the white ball spinning and popping. It landed in the black 13 slot. The expression of elation was unanimous and instant. Black, not red. It was heart-stopping. Now that the handsome couple was worth 60,000 euros, there were shrieks of laughter and knowing nods. 
Marie had clasped her hands together. For the first time that day, she looked at Otto with something approaching recognition. The only two people in the room who were disappointed stared at each other. Otto had genuinely wanted to lose. For him, the only true release would have been to take Marie out of the game. Bruno's insight was much the same. He knew in the end that everybody was a loser. It was a fact his industry relied on. While Otto may have won the bet, and while the gamblers filming it were euphoric about it, Bruno knew that in the long run, Otto would not be able to beat himself. He would bet again and again until he lost it all. And so it was that all of the chips to the value of 60,000 euros were left on black to win. Bruno nodded contentedly. The croupier spun the wheel and let the white ball fly. All the phones gleamed at the table. The ball flipped, then dipped, then clattered into the black 17 slot. Gasps of amazement shot around the room. The handsome couple was suddenly worth 120,000 euros. Marie grabbed the felt edge of the table, as if she might float up if she didn't. And while Otto still wanted no part of this folly, Bruno's calculation that he must eventually lose made it possible to navigate the proceedings towards a third attempt. Otto left all of the chips on the black to win. Marie shook her head. You can't mean it, she whispered. But her whisper was ecstatic. She sat in her seat as if it was a throne she would never get out of. Bruno nodded. The wheel spun, and the white ball flew. This time, the clattering ball seemed to hover back and forth over the green slot. The crowd breathed in as one. At the very last instant, as if it had been flicked by an unseen finger, the ball buckled into the black two slot. The ebullience was so explosive, even Bruno had to produce a pained smile, not to seem too churlish. He felt like a boy again, being thumped by a father who could easily break bones. He wondered if he should allow Otto to play a fourth time. His boyhood traumas, not to mention the joy breaking out all around, prevented him from making the rational calculation. The moment the value of the bet reached 240,000 euros, Bruno wavered. He was about to make a decision not in keeping with the business model of the club. His thinking was informed entirely by the suspicion that Otto's lucky streak was magical and that it might go on all night if he didn't put a stop to it. Ladies and gentlemen, he called to the gathering, still antennaed with their flashing phones. Every thrill must, in the end, end. <laughs> and I am pleased that this one has ended with such a bang. As manager, I would like to extend my warmest congratulations to the lucky couple. He began to clap. 
For a moment he was alone as dozens of phones were switched off and pocketed so everyone else could clap along. What I don't know. Rigobert Bon had drained the dregs of his flagon. He didn't want to say anything, yet his mouth was talking. He was sitting beneath his oak table, his legs tucked up to his chest like a child. He looked like he wanted to suck his thumb, but people watching might have laughed. Unfinished on the table was his map of the underworld. Rigobert felt defeated by his map. The cognac had sunk him to the bottom of its sea. Addressing all the most eminent people he knew of, naming them one by one, he began by accusing them of coming to gloat. If his feet were cold, it was because he didn't have his shoes anymore. He explained how Cerberus, keeper of the underworld, had taken them from him. What had begun as petulance in his tone resounded around the cave walls until it became indignation. Why me? came the shout. When the word me finished echoing back at him, his eyes welled up. The only candle left burning had nearly died. With flinty satisfaction, he peered into the darkness, knowing that what was left of the candle's wick was illuminating the final glimmers of his life. You see before you, he said. The words reverberated thickly, so that before he could continue, they were already being spoken back at him. You'd never do see after you. The meaning made him giggle. <laughs> ha, true, he said. You see before you. <laughs> but never do you see after you. <laughs> With a drunken flap of his hand, Rigobert waved the echoes of these thoughts aside. He concentrated instead on his address to the ghostly gathering in the cave, there to rub it in. You see before you a man who has worked tirelessly in the service of his king, he said, shining a light on the most desolate regions, so that French dominions may be secured at all four corners of God's creation. And yet, it seems this man has woken up in hell. The stuff of Rigobert's lament drummed against the cave walls, mashing into itself, muddling his mind even further. As the words in hell began to fade, he finally broke down. With a kerchief produced with a flurry, he dabbed his eyes and blew his nose. <coughs> Having cleared his throat, he squared his shoulders and sat up straighter, only to bump his head against the base of the oak table. Above him, what was left of the wick of his only candle flickered. It almost went out, but it rekindled again. There wasn't long left. There was never long left. In a more contrite tone, the Frenchman apologized for his rude outburst. It hadn't been his intention to cause any distress, he explained, 
but he'd been under a great deal of pressure lately. After Cerberus had run off with his shoes, the cave seemed to get so much bigger, yet Rigobert knew it was only ever getting blacker. We all know this blackness, he told all the ghosts gathered there to look at him. Sweeping his hand out to indicate its encroachment, he told his listeners that the blackness was a flattening of everything knowable. Not only a flattening of the malevolence of life, but of everything decent and good as well. It was a flattening of love, a mapmaker's love reduced to a flatness that would soon be lifeless. Only after he'd said this much was Rigobert able to be silent. There was nothing left to do now but wait for the end and fiddle with the length of string the dog had brought him. As we've come so close to the end, there's something I should reveal. I have no idea how it happened. What I wish to say remains as incredible to me as it will to anyone who knows my plight. Before I go on, I will praise you the facts. Sometime in January 2019, before Urania gave him the power to make whatever he imagined come true, Anton Mattins began writing Otto in Flames. We know that before he could physically write chapter 8 of his book, he died while his wife was painting his portrait. In light of Urania's gift, we also know Anton imagined that the only way of finding out how Otto in Flames went on was to return to the cave where his future reader lived. Once he was back in the cave, so he thought, he would be able to ask his future reader, the philosopher Heraclitus, about the rest of the book, and then go back home. In that velvety condition of remembrance after death, Anton's quest was complicated by the fact that he'd become a dog. Yet, Otto in Flames continued to write itself. It wrote itself as my life. Or it seemed to, for the fact of the matter is, the book had already been written. It was a possibility that it already happened in all of its forms. I was real as well. Within this reality, I was alive, trying to navigate and if possible avoid my own carefully plotted history. I believed myself to be an automaton, but like any normal person, I could also think of myself as an entity who could make things happen, rather than something made by events. Being alive had the most exhilarating effect on me. It launched me suddenly into a moving universe. What I can say about myself now is that in the flux of this experience, I was not defined by what I knew. Rather, I was defined by what I didn't know. Which is why the unexpected was always going to happen. It would never have occurred to me, and it certainly would not have occurred to Anton, that I was going to be the one who came up with the ending for his book. I'd been on an epic of my own. It had started twenty years before and had only barely been explored in Anton's other novels about me. Otto in Flames was meant to tell the story of what happened after I got back to Vienna. It was meant to follow me as I got to know my family's darkest secrets. It was meant to flush out the quagmire I would soon get sucked into. 
at its most odious, when it felt like I was about to be crushed and hope was all I had left. What happened came soaring out of the blue, and it couldn't have happened without me. I know what Anton would have said. He would have said that hope comes out of a beautifully ornate container. He would have said that Zeus gave the container to Pandora, telling her that on no account should she open it. But Zeus also gave his victim a burning curiosity, which ensured that she would. Then he made her marry Prometheus's brother, Epimetheus. If it hadn't been for me, Anton would have worked this myth into Otto in flames as intently as all of the other myths he'd been rooting around in. He would have said that when Pandora opened the lid of her container, what flew out were all the most horrendous miseries. To cap it all, Anton would have claimed that hope was not only the last misery to come out, it was the worst misery to come out. It was the worst one because it was the only one that allowed humans to endure the rest of the suffering so artfully bequeathed by the God of Gods. Hope, in Anton's drifting recollections, was just another cruel blow delivered by Zeus to torment Prometheus with. And all because the Titan had made people from mud and had given us fire to see with. But I wasn't about to be drawn into this version of the myth. I was alive and I could think for myself about hope. The more I got used to being alive, the brighter and better my own hope became. Its flame was so fierce in the end, I could see in ways that had never been ordained. Not by Anton, not by his muse, not even by Zeus. Let me say this. When you experience such total coherence, it will always feel as if it's something unique, happening for the very first time. I came to trust that feeling. It's the feeling of what I don't know. The ending of Otto in Flames is set out in chapter 14. At this stage, there's nothing left for me to do but tell you what happened to Anton. A glimmer of hope was all that remained in Rigobert's eye. He'd been fiddling with the string for far too long. Each time another age went by, he'd slipped another hitch in it, shortening it. By the time the dog came scrambling back, the string was a length of tiny knots. Whatever the dog had in its mouth, it was not the Frenchman's other shoe. He knew at once that both shoes were lost forever. With a disdain he'd raised to an art form, he glowered from under his table. He flicked a speck of dust from his sleeve and decided it was time to check what time it was. Since he'd awoken in that stifling cave, his timepiece hadn't been working. He took it out anyway. He flipped the lid open. As he regarded the display, his features hardened. This hardening involved jutting his beard further than it normally jutted. It gave Anton the impression that something dramatic was about to happen. One after two, the Frenchman said. 
our time does persist. Anton let the object in his mouth fall to the ground. He was panting a little, entreating his master to look at the puppet. He'd brought it back as a present from Gordian. When he came to think of it, it seemed to Anton that there was something familiar about the puppet. He sniffed it where it lay. It didn't have much of a smell. It was more the jowly features and the droopy eyes that jogged Anton's memories. Rigobert was looking at the puppet as well. His theater of disdain was slowly replaced by an interest in what the dog had brought back. Where did you get this? he asked. He surmised that it can't have been from the shipwreck. To get a better look, he leaned out from under his table. What is it? he said. He crawled out on all fours. Anton took the opportunity to lick his face. The Frenchman spluttered and shoved the dog aside. He put his nose close to the puppet and squinted hard. You must be Orpheus, Rigobert said. It may have been the cognac talking, and it may have been the cognac responding. Yes, Rigobert said, using a higher voice. I am Orpheus. I have come to deliver you from eternal damnation. <laughs> the Frenchman looked up at Anton. He nodded tellingly, as if there was an important lesson to be learned here. You see, Cerberus, he said, with a hint of the confidence he'd once had so much of. Even in this infernal place, mon cher, nothing is as it seems. Anton barked. But the bark wasn't directed at his master. The dog was looking at the puppet called Orpheus. The puppet was sitting up. It was rubbing its eyes. What's going on? it asked. Still on all fours, Rigobert turned from Anton and set his gaze on what appeared to be the self-animating marionette of a personage. He wasn't ready yet to trust his senses. Did you say something? he asked. Orpheus got to his feet. He brushed some gravel off and straightened his black robe. At his full height, the top of his head reached the shaggy fur hanging from Anton's dribbling jaw. Where am I? the puppet said. He looked from Rigobert to the dog, then back again. It was Rigobert who answered. You are in the underworld. That's impossible, Orpheus said. You found Eurydice, Rigobert went on. You tried your damnedest to save her, but your mission, regrettably, was not a success. I lost Eurydice? It was a question, but Orpheus had already begun to recall the answer. He put his tiny hands to his tiny mouth. You mean I looked back? He knew this was precisely what he'd done, and that by looking back he'd consigned his wife to her fate. I am ever so sorry, Rigobert said. Like a marionette deprived of guidance, Orpheus collapsed in a heap. He pounded his tiny fists on the ground. The grief was genuine, but like him, it was diminutive. It didn't last long, either. The puppet sat up and put his head in his hands, for a moment unable to utter anything but the name of his beloved. My feeling is that Orpheus would always be trapped in his love. The poet could only love in a way that would never have permitted his wife to escape. 
I suspect that Orpheus even looked back on purpose. He didn't want his wife to escape. He knew there was no escape from love. As the pain subsided, he recited the first line of a poem he'd been thinking about a lot lately. Love is bound to the time it takes to have a life. Rigobert nodded sagely. Anton made a noise. It sounded like a complaint, as if the dog was trying to articulate what was disturbing him in sounds better suited to the physiology of a human. Why are you with this dog? Orpheus asked. The Frenchman winced. I cannot speak for the dog, he said. As for me, I was shipwrecked. Mysteriously, I washed up here. Had the awful noises Anton was making been more intelligible, they might have been understood as the expression of a nightmarish realization. For the first time since he'd entered the cave, Anton knew that he had to get away. He believed Orpheus to be me, but he wasn't so sure anymore because of the extraordinary event set out in chapter 14. Whatever was going on, he felt he had to take me with him. Wishing to reassert what he thought of as his mastery over me, he tried to grab the puppet between his teeth. Orpheus rounded angrily. Neither his elfin stature nor his poetic proclivities prevented him from punching Anton on the nose. The dog squealed. Rigobert got to his feet. It was as if he'd been struck on the nose as well. He slapped his head. He slapped it again. Orpheus, he kept saying. You know the reality. Both Anton and the puppet looked keenly at the Frenchman. He seemed overexcited. He began to speak quickly, as if there was no time to lose. You can lead us out of here, he said. You've done it before. You know the way. It is easy. We just follow you. You have no shoes, Orpheus said. They looked at Rigobert's feet. Nor does the infernal dog, Rigobert replied. They looked at Anton's paws. The only candle has all but burnt out, Orpheus said. You could find your way out of here blindfolded, Rigobert insisted. Then another idea struck him. He pointed at the tangle of knotted twine on the ground. We'll tie the string around your waist, he said. I'll keep hold of the other end, then it won't matter if the candle goes out. With a show of excitement, he placed Orpheus on the table and went to pick up the string. Just as he got his hand to it, Anton grabbed the other end. Give it back, the Frenchman gurgled. They pulled in opposite directions. The twine unraveled until it became taut. Anton growled. He pulled harder and harder. When it looked as if neither was going to relent, Orpheus jumped up and down on the oak table. I suppose he was feeling left out. I'll show you the way, he shouted, but only those who love me can follow me. Anton let go of the string then. He let his tongue dangle. He did this to show that it had been a close thing and that if he'd been allowed to carry on playing tug-of-war, he would have won in the end. And besides, the poet's admonition reminded him that he urgently needed to get out of the cave. The thought of getting away had begun as a seed. Now that it was fully grown, there was little else for Anton to look at.
Although the cognac may have confounded him, Rigobert Bond was able to spot an opportunity. In control of the string again, he tied one end around the puppet. To illuminate their way, he scooped what was left of the burning candle into the palm of his hand and said, You have my undying love, Orpheus. Anton barked, as if he loved Orpheus too. Remember, the poet warned, no matter what happens, neither of you must ever look back. When they entered the final passage, it was in a line of three. With Rigobert being pulled along by the puppet on a string, and the dog trotting faithfully behind, they made their way to the flicker of a dying candle. Anton kept woofing contemplatively. A series of electrifying memories were bursting all around him. As each one popped, it felt more jarring than the last. Not only could he recall Rubo, he could clearly picture himself on a horse in the mountains. As if it had only just happened, he remembered being shot at by me. He remembered Oksana bolting. He remembered Oksana painting. He remembered sitting in Oksana's loft and waiting. With everything that was coming back so emphatically, the only thing Anton forgot to remember was that he was writing a book about me. He suffered these spasms for as long as any dog could. Then he began to howl like a wolf. Rigobert didn't look around, but he asked what the matter was. Before Anton could howl again, the candle scorched the Frenchman's palm. He grunted and the flame went out. There was nothing but blackness and breathing now. Yanking hard at the string Rigobert was holding, Orpheus called out, Keep going! Don't look back! Even if there's nothing to see, you mustn't think of looking back. Then they heard the voices. There were two. Both were male, although one was a titan. Anton quickly realized that he was hearing the voices of Heraclitus and Vinctus Promontano. The voices weren't far behind. Ignore them, Orpheus shouted. Keep facing forward. Rigobert trod on the jagged edge of a rock and let out a yelp. Anton was lagging behind. As the voices drew nearer, his curiosity got the better of him. He thought he could hear them talking about what had become of King Midas after he'd turned the whole kingdom to gold. It was difficult to know who was telling this story, because they were both telling it. As far as Anton could gather, it was for the sake of Silenus that Dionysus broke the magic spell. It was only Queen Sibylle who refused to be ungolded. She was placed on a pedestal in the middle of Gordian for all to see. The enormity of what Midas had done meant he could no longer live in his kingdom. He was forced to disown everything he had. With only sackcloth to wear, he went to live in the forest like a hermit. It took a few seasons for Midas to get used to his reduced station in life, Promontano was saying. Slowly, nature drew around him like a cocoon until his existence became dull and lonely. His only friend was a musician, Heraclitus continued. His name was Marcius, 
He played the pipes rather well, but was overproud of his accomplishment. It jarred when anyone suggested the lyre might be a more lovely instrument to listen to. To prove himself, Marcius organized a festival and invited Apollo to come and play. The festival took place in a clearing. It was attended by all the muses. Somewhere ahead, Orpheus called out, Hey, what are you doing? Rigobert's apology was muted. Forgive me, he mumbled, shuffling to catch up with the puppet. I was distracted. Did you once play the lyre? I told you not to listen, the voice of Orpheus chided. It'll turn your head. By now, Anton had stopped walking altogether. He was transfixed. Even his nose had become rigid. Heraclitus was just getting to the part where Marcius and Apollo were playing for the muses. One played the pipes, the other played the lyre. If the music was more divine than usual, it was because all nine muses were listening. Midas himself was so enchanted, he took hold of a fawn and danced like a dervish. It was as if he'd never heard music before. He thought it was the pipes making him move, Heraclitus said. In fact, it was Terpiscore who controlled him. Promontana took up the story. But the muses were not interested in the sounds Marcias was making. It was the sound of Apollo's lyre they loved unanimously. By way of declaring him the winner, Cleo played two blasts on a horn that can still be heard in dreams today. Yet, as Apollo took his bows, Midas let it be known that he'd found the pipe playing more invigorating. My favorite moment, Heraclitus continued, is when Apollo turns to Midas and says, you must have the ears of an ass. Coming from a divinity, Promontano replied, this was no mere slur. The words caused a pair of long hairy shoots to sprout from Midas's head. <laughs> he tried to cover them with his hands, but the protrusions were too ungainly to hide. Heraclitus produced one of his darker chuckles. <laughs> he would take to wearing a turban to hide his ears, he went on. To his dying day, Midas was destined to be as grotesque as he was handsome. As for Marcias, Promontano said, adding another touch to the glistening canvas. He was strapped to a tree and flayed alive for daring to bring such an opinionated king to the festival, while Midas returned to Gordian chastened. The spell had been broken. Gordian was hale again. All might have been forgotten, but the king remained twisted in cruelty. Anyone who talked about the secret he kept under his hat was brutally silenced. Everyone came to know about his ears, but nobody dared to speak of them. In the end, even the fear of death could not prevent Midas's shame from being born on the wind. It was Heraclitus who concluded this tale. I believe he had the statue of his mother melted down for coins, he said. They say he forced himself to drink some of the molten fluid, which sounds very like the work of Cleo. 
the philosopher added. The priest grunted. <laughs> it would have been better had Talia had her way, he agreed. The story might have ended on a lighter note. I thought you preferred dismal endings, Heraclitus said. What makes you think I'm such a cruel god? Bramantano said. You liked Otto in Flames. Otto in Flames has a lovely ending. Heraclitus expressed his dissent by clicking his tongue. He knew better than to contradict a titan, even one as humane as Promontano. I really can't imagine who came up with such an ending. He was very annoyed about it. I rather thought Urania might have had something to do with it, came Promontano's wistful reply. Rigobert's voice was more distant. He was talking to Orpheus. Orpheus replied, but Anton heard nothing. Not because their conversation wasn't audible anymore, but because the only words in Anton's hairy ears were the words, Otto in flames. It was no longer dark. A dimness from behind had begun to wash around him. It grew stronger so that he could begin to make out the walls of the passage they were in. Further off, he could see the stooped figure of the Frenchman as he and the puppet turned a corner in the only way out of Hades. Mightily curious about the glimmer of light coming from behind, Anton forgot himself and looked back. 